Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, my fellow Believers, and welcome in to episode number 31 of Combat Bets on the Believe Network, presented by BetOnline.ag. I'm, of course, your host, Jason Barron, and get ready for another great episode. This episode will be focusing on MMA and the UFC, so if you want to hear my reactions to the big heavyweight fights between Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder, and of course, Anthony Joshua against Alexander Usyk, check out my next episode. However, before I get into some MMA recaps, I did want to touch on the Dodgers season. What a season they had. They battled the Giants, beat them in five games, and before that, they had to play the St. Louis Cardinals in the wild card game, despite winning 106 games and only losing 56, a really great record. But ultimately, they came up short. Uh, after they beat the Giants, they had to face the Atlanta Braves and lost to them in six games, gave a spirited effort. But ultimately, the injuries to Justin Turner, the scandal with Trevor Bauer not even pitching for the Dodgers, of course, the Clayton Kershaw injury, and then in Game 6, Max Scherzer was due to start, but he couldn't due to forearm soreness, so that put Walker Buehler on the mound, and they just weren't able to get it done. But still a great season. Ultimately, there were just too many injuries to deal with. And then you also look at what they did in the offseason. They let go of Jock Peterson and Kike Hernandez in order to have the cap space to sign Trevor Bauer, and you look at how that turned out. Both Kike and Jock Peterson advanced quite far in the postseason. Of course, the Red Sox were ousted by the Houston Astros. Kike Hernandez played really well for the Red Sox, almost helped them get that a big series win against the Astros, but ultimately the Astros have a really strong offensive unit with guys like Jose Altuve, Alex Bregman, Carlos Carrera, Yuri Gurriel, the same characters that cheated their way to a World Series win against the Dodgers. Now, unfortunately, they're getting another chance in the World Series against the Atlanta Braves, so we'll see how that turns out. And then you also look at Jock Peterson, who is now in the World Series, having helped the Braves beat the Dodgers previously. And it worked out pretty well for him, leaving the Dodgers. But ultimately, I think they should have tried to keep both Jock and Kike. I thought they were key parts of that World Series win uh, in the previous season. But... Once the injuries start to pile up for the Dodgers, they really couldn't get out of that series. And the Braves really were the better team. I thought the Dodgers were lucky to not get swept. Their offense came alive in one game when they won 11-2. But other than that, it was really a pretty poor showing from the Dodgers, considering all the hype they had coming into the season. But still, they were one of the last four teams remaining. So that's still a great season. And I bleed Dodger blue, I always will, and I can't wait to see how uh, the next MLB postseason turns out. Hopefully we see the Dodgers back in the World Series. 
With the sport of baseball, I think there is a certain magic to it that you just don't get from other sports. Maybe that's because of the simpleness of the sport. Hit the ball and maybe it goes out, you score a run, you watch the pitcher, throw it, strike ball. It's a very simple game and there's a certain childlike magic to it that is at times both relaxing and also at other times very exhilarating when a player gets a hit or there's an exciting play at home plate. It just has a little bit of everything. Some people say that baseball is boring, but I think it's a beautiful sport and I'm enjoying the World Series even without the Dodgers. And now a word from our sponsor, betonline.ag. We're back and better than ever. A new web interface for the start of the basketball season and more props, odds, and lines than ever before. BetOnline remains your number one spot for all the basketball and football action this season. Head to the new updated desktop or mobile website to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code BLEAV50 to receive your bonus. From basketball, football, baseball, postseason, NHL, boxing, and UFC, right to your favorite Vegas casino games. Don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers available for the 2021 season. BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your favorite sports. Bet online, where the game starts. I'll go ahead and start out with a UFC recap of UFC 262 Oliveira versus Chandler from May 15th from the Toyota Center in Houston, Texas. And in the co-main event, there was Tony Ferguson taking on Beniel Dariush. And Dariush won by unanimous decision, 27 to 30 on all three judges' scorecards. Dariush outlanded him, 76 strikes. Ferguson only 37 strikes. And really, this whole fight was spent wrestling because Dariush had over 12 minutes of ground control time, and really just dominated in the wrestling exchanges. And ever since Tony Ferguson fought Justin Gaethje. He hasn't looked like himself in his next fights after that, and this could be the end of the road for him. Three straight losses to Justin Gaethje by knockout, and two decision losses to Charles Oliveira and Biniel Dariush, both excellent wrestlers that were really able to take advantage of Ferguson's less-than-stellar ground game, show that Ferguson has really taken a step back, and with no fight scheduled, for his next appearance in the Octagon. We'll see where he goes from here. And for Ben Niel Dariush, he continues his hot streak and continues to look like uh, one of the best fighters in his division. And we'll see if he can keep the momentum going and mix up some more striking with his excellent ground game. Because really, he was just relentless in there against Tony Ferguson, taking him down and really controlling all aspects of the fight. Now he's looking for a title fight, so maybe you match him up uh, against perhaps the winner of Oliveira versus Poirier. That's a fight that's coming up, but we'll see. It might not be too long till Dariush is fighting for the title, 
Maybe he gets a tune-up fight and then a title fight, but he just keeps improving in each fight and shows what happens when you work hard and you have a good ground game along with pretty decent stand-up defense. It can get you pretty far in this sport and Dariush just provides a relentless approach to his fighting style. That's part of the reason he was so successful against Tony Ferguson and he is now on a seven-fight win streak, having not lost since 2018 to Alexander Hernandez by first-round knockout. And right now, Beniel Dariush is actually ranked third in that lightweight division at 155 pounds. The champion is Charles Oliveira. Number one, contender Dustin Poirier. Two, Justin Gaethje. Three, Beniel Dariush. And four, Michael Chandler. Since Michael Chandler already has a fight lined up against Justin Gaethje, and of course Poirier will be facing Oliveira for the title, that kind of leaves Binyel Dariush as the odd man out. Even Dan Hooker and Ismail Makashev have a fight lined up against each other as well. So really all the top contenders already have their fights lined up. So Dariush is just going to sit back, see how those fights play out, and probably face one of those fighters in his next fight. But a great performance against Tony Ferguson. Now let's move into the main event on that night, which was of course Charles Oliveira taking on Michael Chandler for the lightweight title. This fight came to be because the GOAT Khabib Nurmagomedov has retired and has not come back to the octagon. So therefore, they came up with this title fight between Charles Oliveira and Michael Chandler. And I gotta say, it was one of the craziest fights I can remember this whole year. The first round, Chandler almost knocks out Oliveira, has him on the ground, pounding him, but he didn't do enough there. He didn't go down to the ground with him to finish him off. Oliveira was somehow able to survive that first round, which Chandler clearly won, and then he turned the tables in that second round. I think Chandler got too comfortable thinking he could touch him up and really hurt him, which of course he did in the first round. But in the second round, Oliveira had something for him. He caught him with a beautiful one-two, I think a right hook that put Chandler down. And then that was the end of the fight, only 19 seconds into round number two. Like I said, one of the craziest shifts in a fight I've seen, where one guy is clearly dominating in the first round, and then the other guy comes out and knocks him out in under 20 seconds in the second round. An amazing title fight, a great win for Oliveira, and now he's got to fight Dustin Poirier next, which is no easy task, and I'm looking forward to that fight as well. When looking at the fight stats, you would actually think that Oliveira should be able to win the wrestling exchanges, but actually Chandler had more ground control time with two minutes and 27 seconds of it as Oliveira had a minute and 42 seconds of ground control time. So both these guys, uh, you know, some of it was fought on the ground, some of it on the feet. It was a really exciting fight for as long as it lasted. And that's when you're going to get whenever Michael Chandler fights. You saw what he did against Dan Hooker. You saw how exciting this fight was against Oliveira. Hopefully Chandler can learn from his mistakes. And he also has another tough fight coming up against Justin Gaethje. Both those lightweight fights are huge for the title picture. 
and I'm looking forward to that. Moving on in the fight stats, so Oliveira landed 32 of 41 total strikes, very efficient, whereas Chandler landed 36 of 61 total strikes, so he was missing uh, a bit more than Oliveira. Overall, it was a very exciting fight, and Chandler might just be a make-it-or-break-it type of fighter. If he can't get you out of there in the first round, there's a chance he could gas out if uh, the fight goes longer. However, if Oliveira and Chandler both win their next fights, they could indeed be fighting once again in a rematch. And I know I would love to see a rematch between these two guys because it was such an exciting and close fight while it lasted that I think another fight would do even more for both their careers. But they both have very tough tests going up against Poirier and Gaethje. I'll be previewing those fights a little bit later in the podcast. Moving on to UFC 263, Adesanya versus Vittori 2. The main event was the middleweight title fight between Israel Adesanya and Marvin Vittori, a rematch. However, before that, the third fight on the card between Leon Edwards and Nate Diaz has got to be one of the most exhilarating fifth rounds I've ever seen. Edwards was really piecing him up for the first four rounds. He won on all three judges' scorecards. 49-46, and this is a rare five-round, non-title, non-main event fight. Why? Because Nate Diaz, the badass that he is, wanted to go five rounds against one of the best welterweights in Leon Edwards. Throughout the fight, Diaz was really getting pieced up on the feet by Leon Edwards. He was using really good boxing fundamentals, working behind his jab to land his power punches, and he also had almost five minutes of ground control time, which is kind of surprising because you figure Nate would want to take this fight to the ground because he was getting beat up on the feet. But even when it went to the ground, Edwards was also winning those exchanges. Nate Diaz, on the other hand, had a minute and 53 seconds of ground control time, and he was landed on a total of 130 times, 76 significant strikes 52 to the head so he really does have a chin on him to be able to take 130 strikes and still come back and keep firing obviously Nate Diaz and his defense isn't the best but he sure can take a punch and he always puts on exciting fights which makes him such a fan favorite Edwards got landed on 83 times and 48 to the head and he got landed on 23 to the legs. So you could see that Nate Diaz was trying to utilize his kicks to try to slow down the lower half of Leon Edwards. And then, as I said, when that fifth round came, uh, the whole fight changed because Nate Diaz was actually able to land a few good one-twos on Edwards that pushed him back against the cage. And you thought for a few seconds there, Whoa, what if Nate can really do this and knock out Edwards? Ultimately, Edwards was able to survive until the final bell, and it went to a decision. But Nate Diaz clearly won that fifth round, almost knocked him out after getting beat up in the first four rounds. This just shows you the heart, the tenacity, and determination of Nate Diaz to come back after taking such a beating and almost finish his opponent. It was an amazing fight. Kind of one-sided, 
but that fifth round really made it quite a memorable exchange between these two guys, and we'll see where they both go from here. Nate Diaz doesn't have his next fight lined up yet, however Leon Edwards will be facing Jorge Masvidal on December 11th from the T-Mobile Arena, so we have that fight to look forward to, a huge fight in the welterweight division. Masvidal, of course, last time out got knocked out by Kamara Usman in their rematch, and Edwards, of course, won, escaping that fifth round against Nate Diaz, and the winner of this fight could get the winner of Covington against Usman. And interestingly enough, Edwards' last loss came in 2015 against Kamara Usman by unanimous decision. So perhaps a rematch could be in the works if he can get past Masvidal and Usman can beat Covington once again. Edwards is just a really well-rounded fighter, which is why he looks so good against Nate Diaz, really dominating most of that fight until, of course, that amazing fifth round that Diaz was able to put together. But you look at the wins that Ed Edwards has put together since his loss to Usman all the way back in 2015. He beat Vincent Luque by unanimous decision, Gunnar Nelson by split decision, Donald Cerrone by unanimous decision. While those are some great wins, his biggest fight of his career has to be the one against Masvidal, and we'll see if he can pull through and perhaps challenge for the title in his next fight. Moving on to the co-main event on that fight card. It was the flyweight title fight between Devinson Figueredo and Brandon Moreno. And Moreno ended up winning by third round submission due to a rear naked choke. And their first fight was really close. It ended in a draw. Their first fight was one of the best fights in 2020 right up there with Zhang Wei Li against Joanna Uresic. And their rematch was really dominated by Brandon Moreno. And I actually thought he was going to go and win this fight and take it from the champion. And that's indeed what he did. You look at the total strikes, Moreno landed 71. Figueroa only landed 33. And then the ground control time, Moreno had 4 minutes and 49 seconds of ground control time. Figueroa only had a minute and 30, and he was able to finish him off with a submission, which is a bit surprising because of how good Devinson Figueroa's ground game is. However, this whole fight, Figueroa just did not look right. Maybe he cut too much weight, and because of that, he was drained going into this title fight, but I don't think he brought the proper energy or fitness level to really compete with Moreno in there, the younger guy, the guy that's hungry and really wants to win the championship, and Figueroa just could not match his intensity, his work rate, or his energy in there, and because of that, he ended up losing his title via submission, and now Brandon Moreno becomes the only current UFC champion from Mexico, so big props to him, and the whole country of Mexico has to be very proud of Brandon Moreno. And by the way, they do have a rematch coming up, so they will be fighting for a third time coming up in January of 2022. So really looking forward to their third fight, seeing if Figaro can come in with more energy and able to dictate the pace a bit more against the younger, hungrier guy in Brandon Moreno, who's now the champion, and I'm sure he won't be wanting to lose his title anytime soon. So we'll see how that fight plays out. And I have to give a lot of credit to both these guys for 
really revitalizing that flyweight division. Because after Henry Cejudo retired, there were talks that they might just scrap the 125-pound division altogether. But now we have these two great warriors, and now they're going to do a trilogy fight in order to continue to uplift all of the flyweight division and prove why it deserves to stay in the UFC. You have to say their first fight was the best flyweight title fight of all time. Their second fight uh, was really dominated by Brandon Moreno. What also makes this trilogy intriguing is that we don't really know who's going to win the third fight. Moreno looked great in the second fight, but that first fight could have gone either way. Ultimately, it was ruled a draw. If Figaro comes out like he did against Benavides, looks really great, really strong, and full of energy, I could see him dominating Moreno and winning that fight. But if Moreno keeps getting better, learns from his past mistakes, perhaps he could retain the title. I know I'm really looking forward to their trilogy fight. Now let's move on to the main event, a middleweight title fight between Israel Adesanya and Marvin Vittori. Previous to this fight, Adesanya tried his hand at taking on the 205 champion in Jan Blockwitz. Ultimately, he came up short because Blockwitz was able to take him down. And then on the feet, Adesanya could never really time Blockwitz and really put his striking together. The story was, of course, different against Marvin Vittori back in the middleweight division at 185 pounds, where Adesanya won by unanimous decision 50 to 45 on all three judges' scorecards. It really wasn't the most exciting fight, but overall it was a very well-rounded performance from Adesanya, who was able to dominate on the feet, on the ground, really wherever the fight went, he was just a little bit better than Vittori. This is what great fighters do. They make other great or pretty good fighters look ordinary, and that's exactly what Adesanya was able to do against Vittori, who has to be considered one of the top middleweights. The middleweight rankings are as follows. Israel Adesanya is the champion. Robert Whitaker, number one contender. Number two, Marvin Vittori. Three, Jared Kanier. Four, Derek Brunson. And five, Paolo Costa. And you just saw what Vittori did against Paolo Costa. A very impressive performance where he won by unanimous decision. He, he even got past Costa's very powerful leg kicks, landed his takedowns, was able to piece Costa up on the feet because Costa was slower and the bigger man as a result carrying that extra weight because he didn't even try to make the 185 pound limit. He looked slower in there, but he also was strong and Vittori was very impressive in getting past Costa to set himself up for another big title fight in the future. Give credit to Vittori for even taking this fight because Costa came in at 205 pounds and didn't even try to make the 185 pound limit, but Vittori was not deterred and still took this fight. They both came in at around 205 pounds and Vittori was just the faster fighter in there, the better wrestler, and he was even able to win the striking exchanges. Getting back to his title fight against Israel Adesanya, Adesanya landed 122 total strikes, Vittori landed 91 total strikes. However, neither fighter was able to land any really telling blows that could have ended the fight with the knockout. Adesanya was content with just staying on the outside and piecing him up with his longer reach and also his uh, leg kicks as he was able to land 
41 shots to the legs of Marvin Vittoria, really slowing down his lower half. However, Vittoria did have 6 minutes and 55 seconds of ground control time. So he tried to control Adesanya on the ground, but couldn't get any submissions done or really do any devastating ground and pound that might have won him this title. So overall, a decent performance from Adesanya. Definitely not the most impressive performance we've seen from Adesanya. And now he'll be facing Robert Whitaker coming up in February of 2022. A rematch between these two fighters. Whitaker has looked great in his past few fights. And we'll see if he can come out victorious against the great Adesanya. With Vittori coming off a big win over Paulo Costa. Maybe next he takes on the third ranked contender Jared Kanier. Or the fourth ranked contender in Derek Brunson. Both of those are huge fights for Vittori. Or maybe Dana White decides to just give him the winner of Whitaker and Adesanya. I mean, I think he deserves it, considering how good he looked against Paulo Costa. Or perhaps he'll match him up against one of the two previously mentioned fighters. And we'll see how that middleweight division plays out. However, I don't think Adesanya will be losing his title to Whitaker. I think he's too fast and too elusive for him. And that's what makes him such a special fighter, is his ability to get out of range and back in range to hit you and not get hit. That's really the art of fighting. Adesanya is one of the best practitioners at it, and I can't wait to see him fight again. And for Marvin Vittori, he continues his upward trajectory. He's still young, he's still getting better, and we'll see what happens for him in his next fight. However, for Paulo Costa, I think he's really got to look inward and see why he didn't even try to make weight for this big middleweight fight. And also why um, he's losing these fights to guys that are of equal skill level or maybe a little bit better than him. You know, why did he look so terrible when he fought Adesanya for the title? And then against Marvin Vittori, he looked pretty much gassed after that first round. Even though he was able to come on strong in parts of the next four rounds, really Vittori was dictating the pace, dictating if the fight would stay on the feet or go to the ground. And Costa really has to work on his stamina. Um, he has to eat better and treat his health with more seriousness because in his previous fight, he didn't even try to make weight against Marvin Vittori. And then his loss to Israel Adesanya, he blamed on drinking too much wine the night before, and he was tired going into the fight. Well, if I'm a top middleweight, that's not how I'm going to treat my body. I'm going to do everything I can to give myself the best chance to win come fight night. And I don't think that Costa has been doing that uh, these past couple of fights that he's been in. Hopefully he can learn from his mistakes and become a better fighter going into his next fight. Moving on to UFC 264, Poirier vs. McGregor 3 on July 10th from the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas. And in the co-main event, there was a big welterweight showdown between Gilbert Burns and Stefan Thompson. Burns won by unanimous decision, 29-28 on all three judges' scorecards after three rounds. Burns landed 101 total strikes, Thompson only 59 and Burns had 7 minutes and 13 seconds of ground control time, 3 of 6 on his takedown attempts. So this fight really went the way I thought it would go. 
I thought that if Burns was able to control this fight on the mat, that Thompson wouldn't really have much of a chance because he really wants to keep it on his feet and use his karate style, his long reach, his long legs to keep Burns on the outside. Ultimately, Burns proved too tough in there and he was able to take him down throughout the course of the fight and really control all aspects of how this fight was gonna play out. Burns just seemed to want it more and knew that a loss here against Stephen Thompson would really set back his aspirations of challenging for the title once again. He really came back well after getting knocked out by Kamara Usman in his previous fight and Gilbert Burns said that the next fight he wants is either against Leon Edwards or Jorge Masvidal. Since they're actually squaring off against each other, maybe he'll get the winner of that fight. But right now he's just on the sidelines, kind of has to wait and see how the welterweight fights play out and where he fits into that. But there's no doubt he's a top contender in that division. But right now the king is still Kamara Usman and he likely won't be losing his title to Kobe Covington. So there's definitely some big welterweight fights coming up to look forward to. The welterweight rankings are as follows. Kamar Usman, the champion. Kobe Covington, the number one ranked contender, which is Usman's next fight. Number two, Gilbert Burns. Three, Leon Edwards. Four, Vincent Luque. Five, Stephen Thompson. Six, Michael Chiesa. And seven, Jorge Masvidal. Burns remains a very hungry fighter. And he showed that after his loss to Usman that he plans on coming back better and improving, learning from that loss. And we'll see where he goes. But a big time performance against Stephen Thompson that he absolutely needed. And for Thompson, he's still a, a decent contender. He might not be at that elite level, but he'll be able to beat most guys in his division. Maybe just not the top five guys. Moving on to the main event now. We had a lightweight main event between Dustin Poirier and Conor McGregor. This was the third time they were fighting. Previously, McGregor knocked out Poirier in 2014 when both of them were very different fighters than they are present day. And then they finally met once again in 2021. So seven years after 2014. And he knocked out McGregor um, via second round knockout in their second fight and then in their third fight Poirier won by TKO doctor stoppage after the first round. This was because McGregor's back leg gave out when he took a step back. It was a non-contact injury. We're questioning if McGregor is made of glass and he, if he is that fragile but later on we found out that McGregor's leg was already previously fractured and that most likely a worse injury was going to occur if he tried to fight on it. And that's indeed what happened against Poirier. He definitely came in under 100% and as a result suffered a pretty debilitating injury and he may never be the same fighter again. Although he really hasn't been the same fighter since he fought Mayweather in a boxing match. When you look at McGregor's record, he really hasn't beaten anyone of consequence since he beat Eddie Alvarez in 2016 by second round knockout. Since then, he took two years off and fought the GOAT Khabib Nurmagomedov in 2018 and lost to him by fourth round submission. Then he knocked out Donald Cerrone, an older Donald Cerrone who's been through a lot. 
in the first round in only 40 seconds in 2020. And then after that fight, we thought, oh, maybe McGregor is back to his old self and he can give us fans some more exciting and memorable moments. But guess what? Dustin Poirier shut all that down. In their second fight, their rematch, he knocked him out in the second round. Even though he was the underdog going into that fight, he showed why he's the better fighter, the stronger fighter, and has evolved more since his loss to McGregor in 2014. While McGregor has lost sight of what has made him so successful over the years, which was his explosive fighting style, his ability to get in and out of range, and move in unorthodox motions that made him such an exciting fighter to watch. But now, after he made all that money from the Mayweather fight, I think he kind of lost the love for the sport, and he just was never really the same after that. Add on to that his latest injury, and it's going to be very difficult for McGregor to make a big comeback in this sport because it's a very difficult sport and it becomes even more difficult when you have injuries to deal with and maybe your mental isn't all there, you're not fully focused on the fight game and it showed against Poirier and then in their third fight his body ultimately failed him as he took a step back and his ankle broke in half really from the weight uh, that he put on his back leg Ultimately, it shouldn't have happened if he was healthy, but unfortunately for McGregor, he's got to, you know, really look inward now and decide, does he want to continue his fighting career or go off into the sunset, a very rich man and one of the most amazing fighters in recent UFC history. However, the way his career has come about as of late is perhaps not inspiring the most confidence in his fans. But this is part of the reason we watch sports. We watch it to see the rise of an athlete and also their fall. And McGregor is definitely in that fall territory. His rise ascended really when he knocked out Jose Aldo and then he also knocked out Eddie Alvarez. Since then, he's really been falling in the sport of UFC, but he still remains a very polarizing figure. And I know if he ever does fight again, I'll be tuning in. And then on the flip side, you see the rise of Dustin Poirier. Steadily but surely, he's gone better and better in each fight. Learned from his loss to Khabib, and he remains one of the best lightweights in the UFC. That's why after his loss to Khabib by third round submission, he went on to get a unanimous decision win over Dan Hooker in a great all-action fight, followed up by two huge wins over Conor McGregor, to now set up his next huge fight, a title fight, against the champion Charles Oliveira coming up on December 11th. While one fighter may be made of glass in Conor McGregor due to his weak leg, the other fighter, Dustin Poirier, the Diamond Poirier, could be made of diamonds as he continues to overcome the pressure of these big fights and turn it into diamonds a beautiful thing to watch, and I'm looking forward to that title fight against Oliveira. As for the actual fight, in their third fight between Poirier and McGregor, Poirier landed 36 total strikes, McGregor landed 43. Poirier had 3 minutes and 18 seconds of ground control time and was one of two on his takedown attempts, and he landed 35 shots to the head and McGregor only landed 13 shots to the head of Poirier. So you could see that Poirier was still winning this fight in the first round, 
before the injury took place and he was able to dictate the pace. While we didn't get to see him knock out McGregor again, it might have ended in that fashion if not for the injury. Overall, I think Poirier has successfully completed this huge chapter in his fighting career against his rival McGregor, and now we'll see if he can go out and win the title against Oliveira. Moving on to UFC 265 Lewis vs. Gane on August 7th from the Toyota Center in Houston, Texas. In the co-main event, it was a bantamweight fight between Jose Aldo and Pedro Munoz, and Aldo won by unanimous decision, 30-27 on all three judges' scorecards. After three rounds, and Aldo landed 114 total strikes, Munoz only landed 75. Both these fighters are 35 years old, but Aldo showed he still has a bit more left in the tank than Munoz did on that night. I thought he looked quicker and with more energy, with more tenacity, and more purpose in what he was doing. Munoz was really on the back foot for most of that fight, could never really get any offense going, and Aldo was just quicker to the punch, beating him in between punches, and really utilizing his all-around good striking and pretty great stamina to keep the pace going for the full three rounds, which really impressed me, because we've seen before, for example, when Aldo fought Peter Jan, Aldo started out really strong, but as the rounds kept going, he started to tire more and more, and eventually Jan took over and, and knocked out Aldo. In this fight, Aldo was able to keep the pace going for the entire fight and was able to win. He was really able to mix it up quite well to the head and body of Munoz. He landed 74 shots to the head and 32 to the body of Munoz, really mixing it up. Munoz, on the other hand, landed 37 kicks to the legs, but that wasn't enough to change the momentum of the fight. And it was a big win for Jose Aldo, who will next be fighting against Rob Font, while Pedro Munoz will be taking on Dominic Cruz next. So, some more fights to look forward to. This fight was completely contested on the feet, as neither Aldo nor Munoz really wanted to make this a wrestling match and that favored Aldo because he was faster to the punch and was able to beat Munoz in most of the striking exchanges. Now in the heavyweight main event title fight we had Derek Lewis taking on Sergio Gane for the heavyweight title even though Francis Ngannou of course knocked out Stipe Miocic to become the heavyweight champion. I don't understand why this was a title fight because Francis Ngannou, he never vacated his t heavyweight title. So why would you make Derek Lewis against Cyril Gane a title fight? Either way, now we know that Gane will be fighting Ngannou to determine the true heavyweight champion. That heavyweight title fight will be taking place in January of 2022. So a big heavyweight title fight to look forward to. But getting back to the fight between Gane and Derek Lewis, the reason that Derek Lewis was getting this opportunity is because he had two knockout wins over the likes of Alexei Olenek, and then of course he knocked out Curtis Blades. When Blades went for a takedown, Derek Lewis hit him with a powerful uppercut that knocked out Curtis Blades, and then he parlayed that into a huge fight 
against Cyril Gane, who was just the better man on the day. He really dominated Lewis from start to finish. Lewis looked like the slower fighter, the fighter that didn't want it as badly as Gane. And really, wherever this fight went, Gane was just faster, more aggressive, and also more measured at times in his striking. While Lewis tried to land that big knockout punch, he was just too slow for Gane, and Gane was also too elusive to get caught in into any of these big exchanges where Lewis may actually have a chance to knock him out. However, that did not happen. And ever since Cyril Gane has entered the UFC, he's really been quite impressive. He has wins over the likes of Tanner Bozer by unanimous decision, Junior Dos Santos by second round knockout, Jarzinho Rosenstrike and Alexander Volkov by unanimous decision. In his latest performance, a knockout win over Derek Lewis in the third round. And Lewis took quite a beating from the sustained pressure over the course of three rounds by Cyril Gane. What may be even more impressive than Gane's offense is his defense. Lewis was only able to land 16 total strikes in a fight that lasted three rounds. On the other hand, Gane landed 112 total strikes, 50 to the head, 16 to the body, and 32 to the legs of Lewis with a minute and 21 seconds of ground control time, really dominating and not allowing Lewis to get his offense off or even have a chance to knock him out. It impressed me because we know Lewis is a very dangerous knockout puncher, but Gane was able to control how the fight was going to go and where the distance of the fight was going to be contested at. It wasn't going to be contested in close range and become a firefight. No, Gane would slowly but surely break him down, head, body, legs of Lewis, and eventually he would crumble, and that's indeed what happened with a third round knockout of Gane, now setting up a huge title fight against Francis Ngannou. Lewis just didn't seem to have the energy to even want to challenge Gane or even make this a competitive fight. Perhaps that's because of Gane's relentless pressure and also his measured approach to not get himself into any uh, firefight exchanges where he could get knocked out. And it proved very frustrating for Derek Lewis. And we've seen before from Lewis when he's frustrated, he kind of just stops being aggressive. And that's what happened against Gane. It also happened when he fought Francis Ngannou. Hopefully he can learn from this pretty bad performance against Gane and become a better fighter for it. And for Gane, he's got a big fight coming up against Ngannou. Of course, he's going to have to watch out for that knockout power. Derek Lewis also has his next fight lined up against Chris Daukas coming up on December 18th. So, another fight to look forward to there. Now let's move on to UFC 266. Volkanovski vs. Ortega on September 25th from the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas. And in the fourth fight on the card, we had a big heavyweight matchup between Curtis Blades and Jarzinho Rosenstrike. And Blades was able to win by unanimous decision, 30-27 on all three judges' scorecards. Coming back after that knockout loss to Derek Lewis to get back in the win column, he was able to beat Rosenstrike on the feet, landing 113 total strikes. Rosenstrike only landed 46, and then he... Blades also had 6 minutes and 19 seconds of ground control time. 
and was three of six on his takedown attempts. So clearly his strategy was to get this fight to the ground and control it from there. And that's indeed what he was able to do. Of course, we have seen Rosenstrike knock out the likes of Junior Dos Santos and also Alistair Overeem. But in this fight against Blades, Blades used a measured approach, very disciplined, to make sure this fight was going to go the way he wanted it to go and he would dictate the terms versus Rosenstrike having a chance to knock him out. Even in this fight, I thought that Blade's stand-up was getting better and better. I know he is primarily known as a wrestler, but in this fight, he really showed me that he can't stand in exchange, throw some good punches, while striking is definitely not a strong suit. He showed against a knockout artist like Rosenstrike that he can still hold his own on the feet, which will only help him even more in setting up his takedowns which is really his bread and butter and what makes him such a tough fighter to beat. It was a pretty well-rounded performance from Curtis Blades and exactly the type of performance he needed after taking that knockout loss to Derek Lewis. We'll see where both these heavyweight fighters go from here. Blades will always have a chance in any fight because of his wrestling acumen. Rosenstrike will always have a chance in any fight because of his amazing knockout power. His ability to knock out guys stepping back off his back foot or coming forward, which makes him such a dangerous striker. Moving on to the next fight on that fight card, we had the return of Nick Diaz taking on Robbie Lawler. Nick Diaz is a true legend of the sport. He first fought professionally all the way back in 2001, and the last time he fought Robbie Lawler was all the way back in 2004 when he won by second round knockout. Now he came back to fight in September of 2021 after not fighting since January of 2015. So six years off from the sport and even though he lost this fight by third round knockout to Lawler because of the overall pressure of Lawler on the inside, I thought that Nick Diaz still showed his quality in there. He was still able to piece up Lawler with some beautiful one-twos, showed his great boxing acumen against Lawler. Ultimately, the pressure of Lawler, his overall activity in the fight, was able to get him the win. But don't take anything away from Nick Diaz because I thought he performed quite admirably for, for being out of the sport for six years. This was a great all-action fight. It would have been fight of the night if not for that incredible title fight we got between Volkanovski and Ortega. Both Lawler and Diaz refused to take a step back as they stood in the pocket the whole fight throwing bombs at each other and it was just such a fun fight to watch and that's why whenever the Diaz brothers get in the ring whether it be Nate or Nick Diaz you've got to watch that fight because you know it's going to be exciting and Nick Diaz did not disappoint. After getting off to somewhat of a slow start, Diaz landed 150 total strikes, 114 to the head, and 36 to the body of Lawler. Lawler landed 131 total strikes, 88 to the head, and 33 to the body, and 10 to the legs of Diaz. This whole fight was fought on the feet, making it even more exciting Diaz showed his quality in there. Ultimately, though, the pressure of Robbie Lawler and the ability to not take a step back but really come forward and go right at Diaz is why he won this fight 
by third round knockout in a great all-action fight. That's definitely one of the best fights I've seen all year. Even in defeat, I thought that Nick Diaz and some of his combinations that he was throwing is really next level boxing stuff that you only see from the true greats in the sport that have really been doing it for a long time, like Diaz has been, like going to the body, then to the head, mixing it up, throwing combinations that you don't see all the time is really why I love to see what he still has at his late age. And then Robbie Lawler on the other side, this was a big win for him because if he loses this fight, his career is likely over. So now Robbie Lawler can move on and we'll see who he gets next. But he's coming off four straight losses to Dos Anjos, Rafael Dos Anjos, Ben Askren, Kobe Covington, Neil Magny. So he really needed a win and he was able to get it against Nick Diaz. Clearly, both of these fighters are past their primes and they've been through a lot of wars and they're not the fighter they used to be. But when they can still put on fights like that, it's why we love the sport and why we love to watch these longtime fighters still get in the octagon and square off against each other because they can produce absolutely classic fights like the one we saw between Diaz and Lawler. Now moving on to the co-main event. This fight featured the women's flyweight champion in Valentino Shevchenko at 125 pounds taking on Lauren Murphy. Shevchenko is the greatest women's fighter not named Amanda Nunes. She really has no holds in her game. She's great on the ground, great in striking with her hands or her feet. Wherever the fight goes, Shevchenko will feel comfortable with it going there. In this fight, she ended the fight with a fourth round knockout after really overwhelming Murphy, Murphy wasn't answering back and Shevchenko just kept putting the pressure on her and got her out of there in the fourth round. But give a lot of credit to Murphy for lasting four rounds because I thought this fight might end in a first round knockout. It could be over quickly, but Murphy was able to last. She really wasn't able to do anything of much consequence, but give her credit for not getting blasted out of there in the first round like some girls do when they go in there against Shevchenko. Shevchenko landed 132 of 204 total strikes, so very efficient there. 98 significant strikes, 62 to the head, 19 to the body, and 17 to the legs. So really mixing it up there. And 3 of 4 on her takedown attempts for 4 minutes and 4 seconds of ground control time. On the other hand, Murphy was only able to land 19 strikes in a fight that lasted 4 rounds, getting dominated from start to finish, and Shevchenko showed why she continues to be one of the best women's fighters ever, and perhaps she'll be facing Amanda Nunes in the near future, because I don't see anyone else in her division that can really challenge her. Let's check out the UFC rankings for her division. The champion, of course, is Valentina Shevchenko. Number one contender, Jessica Andrade. Number two, Caitlin Chikugian. Three, Lauren Murphy. Four, Jennifer Maya. And five, Cynthia Calvillo. I don't think any of those fighters even hold a candle to Valentina Shevchenko as she continues to be a dominant champion and once again putting in an amazing performance against Lauren Murphy, doing exactly what she needed to do to continue to cement her claim as one of the best women's fighters we've ever seen. Part of the reason she has really no holes in her game is because she studied so many different disciplines from Muay Thai to Jiu Jitsu to Karate to Kickboxing 
and she combines all those skills to make her a nearly unstoppable force in the octagon. Moving on to the main event between Alexander Volkanovsky and Brian Ortega, this was a featherweight title fight at 145 pounds. The champion Alexander Volkanovsky ultimately won by unanimous decision. 49-46, 50-45, and 50-44 on all three judges' scorecards. Volkanovsky landed 229 total strikes, 146 to the head, 20 to the body, and 48 to the legs, and he had 3 minutes and 51 seconds of ground control time. Ortega landed 101 total strikes, 59 to the head, 20 to the body, and 9 to the legs, with 54 seconds of ground control time. With three submission attempts, that's what made this fight so exciting. It's that you didn't know truly how it was going to go. For most of the fight, Volkanovski was controlling the stand-up due to his consistent approach. Volkanovski is going to kick you to the leg, then go head-body, and he's going to keep doing it over and over again until you wilt under his pressure or you lose by decision. That's what makes him such a tough champion to beat. It's that he's so consistent in his striking and the game plan that he wants to impose on his opponents, that he's able to do it over and over again, and no one is able to stop him. And he's also a fighter of smaller stature, making him a smaller target to hit for his usually taller opponents, and it makes Volkanovski a very tough fighter to beat, and also one that's very consistent, and knows what he wants to do, and sticks to that game plan. He kicks you to the leg, then he goes head-body, and continues to put on this relentless, well-rounded approach that will ultimately break you down if you don't wilt under the pressure. Ortega did well. He didn't get discouraged by Volkanovski's constant striking and really beating him up on the feet. When this fight did go to the ground, there were a few times, two specifically, where Ortega nearly choked out Volkanovski and won that featherweight title. Ultimately, because Volkanovski is smallest stature, he doesn't have much of a neck, which makes it very hard to choke him out, and that's indeed what happened, because most guys would have tapped had Ortega had them in the choke holes that he had Volkanovski in, but ultimately Volkanovski was able to wait it out and find an opportunity to escape those submission attempts. Then he got on top of Brian Ortega and started raining down ground and pound on him to shift the momentum back in his favor. But give credit to Ortega, he took a hell of a beating in there. He still came back. He was still dangerous off his back with those submission attempts. And all around for Volkanovski, I thought he showed amazing stamina in there to push the pace all five rounds and not look tired in there. It just shows you what great shape he's in and why he's such a tough champion to beat. Despite Volkanovski being the shorter fighter by two inches, he showed why that can sometimes be a bit an advantage because with shorter arms and shorter legs it takes less time for your strikes to get to your opponent and then your opponent also has to reach out longer to hit a smaller target so he shows that sometimes being a smaller fighter can actually work to your advantage as it did against Brian Ortega. Now I'm not sure what's next for these two fighters. Volkanovski could get the winner of Holloway against Yair Rodriguez and Ortega he might need a while to recover from that beating he took against Volkanovski, but make no mistake, this was one of the best featherweight title fights I've ever seen. It could be the best. It was more exciting than the fights that Volkanovski had against Max Holloway, 
and give credit to Brian Ortega for staying dangerous and making this such an exciting fight. Volkanovski also, you have to give tremendous credit to him for staying consistent in his striking and digging deep in order to pull out that fight and retain his featherweight title. Now let's move into some UFC previews for some upcoming fights. Coming up this Saturday, UFC 267 Blockowitz vs. Teixeira from the Etihad Arena in Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates. The main card starts at 11 a.m. on ESPN+. Plus. Prelims start at 7.30 a.m. also on ESPN+. Plus. So this is a fight card you're not going to need pay-per-view for. And because it's from Abu Dhabi, it does have an early start time. So make sure to wake up and check out this big fight card. I'll go ahead and start with the fifth fight on that fight card. We, it features the return of Kazmat Shmaev, one of my favorite fighters to watch. He's finally making his return after not fighting since 2020 when he knocked out Gerald Merchardt in 17 seconds in the first round. Now he's finally making his return in 2021 after battling COVID. I believe that Kazmat Shmaev has all the tools to be a future champion in the UFC. Hopefully he can stay healthy and string a few wins together because he combines great wrestling with powerful striking, making him nearly unbeatable in there. We haven't seen him challenged yet in the octagon, and he'll be facing a Chinese fighter in Li Jing Lian in his first fight back since his battle with COVID and his first fight in 2021. Shemaev is a big favorite at minus 550. Li Lian comes back as a plus 400 underdog. Jiang Lian is 6 feet, 171 pounds, with a 71 and a half inch reach. Shemaev is 6'2", 171 pounds, with a 75 inch reach. So he has a reach on him of 3.5 inches and is also taller than the Chinese fighter. Li Jian Lian is 33 years old and Kazmat Shemaev is 27 years old. So right now he's in the prime of his life when an athlete has really grown into their body and realized all of the vast skills they have and how to utilize them in a fight. And I think Shemaev is doing that in each fight. I expect him to win this fight, I'll say, by second round submission because of his all-around game. He can beat you on the feet. He can beat you on the ground. I think it's going to take a very skilled fighter to ultimately defeat Shemaev. Now moving on to the fourth fight on that fight card. It's a heavyweight fight between Alexander Volkov and Marcin Tibora. Volkov is coming off a loss to Cyril Gane by unanimous decision. And Marcin Tibora is coming off a win over Walt Harris by knockout in the first round back in June of 2021. So Volkov will be looking to get back to his winning ways against Marcin Tabura, a guy that's not going to be as tough as Cyril Gane, and that's why he's the big favorite here. Volkov, the favorite at minus 300. Tabura, the underdog, at plus 240. Volkov is 6'7", 263 pounds with an 80-inch reach. Tabura is 6'3", 249 pounds with a 78-inch reach. So Volkov is four inches taller than him and outreaches him by two inches. So he should be able to keep this fight on the outside and really just pepper Tabura with kicks and punches from the outside 
and really make this a tough fight for Tabura to get through. I expect Volkov to come out victorious here, I'll say by second round knockout. I think he just has too much size, too much skill. He's been in there with the best guys in his division and perhaps a future champion in Cyril Gane. He's also been in there against Curtis Blades, both losses to those two fighters, but he's also knocked out Alistair Overeem and Walt Harris and got a unanimous decision win over Greg Hardy. I think Volkov is still getting better. He's 33 years old, but in each fight, he seems to learn from his mistakes like he learned from the fight against Curtis Blades that he has to get better in his takedown defense in order to set up more of his striking. And then in his fight against Cyril Ghani, I, I expect he'll take some lessons from that fight and apply it to this upcoming one against Tabura. So like I said, I, I like Volkov here by second round knockout. On to the third fight on the card. It's a lightweight matchup between Islam Makashev and Dan Hooker. Makashev trains closely with Khabib and he's employing his style inside the octagon. He's got a great ground game and he's very tough to beat. In the lightweight rankings, Makashev is ranked at 5 and Dan Hooker is ranked at 6. But then you look at the odds for this fight. Makashev is a minus 625 favorite while Dan Hooker is the big underdog at plus 450. Makashev being a significant favorite despite them being so close in the rankings. Dan Hooker at 6 and Makashev at 5 shows what people think of how good Makashev can be and I think he could be a future champion if he gets to fight the winner of Poirier and Charles Oliveira. If Makashev is able to control this fight on the ground and really make it a tough fight for Hooker then he'll most likely come out with a unanimous decision win. If Hooker can keep this fight on the feet and really look to push the pace against Makashev and try to make him uncomfortable in there, he might have a puncher's chance of knocking him out. Makashev is Russian. He's 30 years old with a 70-inch reach, and he's 5'10", 155 pounds. Dan Hooker is 31 years old. He's Australian. He's 6 feet, 156 pounds, with a 75-inch reach. So he's got 2 inches of height on him and a 5-inch reach over Makashev. However, Makashev has a better ground game, and overall, he looks like the better fighter. But don't discount Dan Hooker, because we've seen him before against the likes of Dustin Poirier, that he can really push the pace and make the other fighter have to dig really deep to get a win. And hopefully he can do that against Makashev, because if he lets Makashev just dictate the pace and get takedowns whenever he wants, then Dan Hooker really has no chance in this fight. This is a quick turnaround for Dan Hooker who last fought on September 25th when he won by unanimous decision over Nasrat Hakparist in his last fight and he really needed this win after coming off two straight losses to Dustin Poirier and then Michael Chandler by knockout. Now he's back in the win column with the unanimous decision win back in September and now a little more than a month turnaround for him and he's fighting a very tough guy in Islam Makashev and looking at Makashev's record he is 20-1 with 9 wins by submission and his last loss came all the way back in 2015 to Adriano Martins by knockout. He has wins over the likes of Nick Lentz, 
Chris Wade, Glayson Tebow, Drew Dober, and most recently in July of 2021, he got a fourth-round submission win over Thiago Moises. He does a really good job of pressuring you and not letting you get back up and get into your offensive rhythm because you're usually at his mercy when he takes you down to the ground and then he can submit you or ground and pound you. He's really got a pretty good all-round game. And I don't think Dan Hooker stands much of a chance, so I'll go ahead and pick Makashov to win by third-round submission. I just think his all-around ground game and Dan Hooker's inability to really make him think about not taking him down because he isn't the hardest puncher is what's going to be his downfall in this fight. And I think he'll eventually wilt under the pressure that Makashov puts on him and Hooker will end up losing by submission in what should be another big fight for Makashov as he continues his march towards the title. The co-main event features a bantamweight title fight between Peter Jan and Corey Sandhagen. Jan is coming off a disqualification loss to Aljamain Sterling due to kneeing him when he was down, which is an illegal strike in the UFC, and he lost his title because of a disqualification. But make no mistake about it, he was winning that fight, he was beating up Aljamain Sterling, and make no mistake about it, he most likely would have won by knockout had he not got disqualified for that unfortunate knee to a downed opponent. And he'll be facing Corey Sanhagen, who's coming off a split decision loss to TJ Dillashaw in his last fight. I actually thought he won that fight because he really pieced up Dillashaw on the feet and he looked really beat up by the end of the fight, whereas Sanhagen, his face looked pretty blemish-free. And Dillashaw looked like he had just been through a war, one hell of a fight. And let's look at the fight stats here. And this is perhaps why Dillashaw eked out a very close split decision win over Sanhagen. Sanhagen landed 171 total strikes. And he landed 110 to the head, 10 to the body, and 8 to the legs. Dillashaw landed 169 total strikes, so nearly identical there. 59 to the head, 10 to the body, and 41 to the legs, with 8 minutes and 22 seconds of ground control time, and he was 2 of 19 on his takedown attempts. That's right, he went for 19 takedowns. That's incredible. And that's probably why he ended up winning this fight, because he had over 8 minutes of ground control time. But I thought on the feet that Sanhagen was definitely the more powerful striker, the one that landed the more telling blows, but give a lot of credit to Dillashaw for sticking in there and pushing the pace for the full five rounds in what was a pretty exciting fight. I thought Sanhagen deserved the win and I'm excited and I'm glad that he's getting this title shot against Peter Jan. Previous to that close loss to TJ Dillashaw, he knocked out both Marlon Moras and Frankie Edgar to set up this big fight against Peter Jan. Jan is Russian. He's 28 years old, 5'7", 135 pounds, with a 67-inch reach. Sandhagen is American, 29 years old, 5'11", 135 pounds, with a 70-inch reach, and he last fought in July against TJ Dillashaw in a very close and competitive fight. Now, going into this fight, Jan is the favorite at minus 220. Sandhagen is the underdog at plus 180. 
And since this is a five round title fight, I think that favors Jan because we've seen in the past, Jan is kind of a slow starter. And then as the rounds wear on, he gets stronger and stronger and usually overwhelms his opponents. And the only reason he is not facing Aljamain Sterling in a rematch is because Sterling is dealing with a neck injury, I believe, and so he couldn't take this fight. So Stan Hagen has stepped in to fight Peter Jan for the bantamweight title. Stan Hagen actually lost to Aljamain Sterling by first round submission due to a rear naked choke. Stan Hagen has learned from that loss and become a better fighter for it. And now he's getting a huge opportunity against Peter Jan, despite losing a very close fight to TJ Dillashaw by split decision. Stan Hagen has a very versatile striking game. He can kick you, he can punch you. He's very long, very athletic, throws a lot of cool techniques in there. Jan is more compact. He's looking to get on the inside and land his power punches, mix in some takedowns and some ground and pound, and really overwhelm you with his pressure and his ability to put strikes together. Stan Hagen is the more flashy fighter. You saw that beautiful flying knee he caught Frankie Edgar with to knock him out in the first round. He'll be hoping to do that again against Peter Jan, but Jan is tough, he's durable, he can take a punch, and then he can come back and land his own telling blows. I like Jan to win this fight by unanimous decision. I just think his stamina and his ability to put the pressure on Sanhagen will ultimately win him this fight. Sanhagen may start out strong, landing some kicks on Jan. Eventually, Jan will find his timing, find his rhythm, and do what he does, which is overwhelm you in the later rounds. This has a chance to be fight of the night. If both these fighters come and bring it, this could be an all-out striking battle. And if Jan is getting pieced up on the feet, he might look to take down Sanhagen and control the rest of the fight from the ground. So I'll take Jan here to win his title back and win by unanimous decision against Sanhagen in a close and competitive fight. If Sanhagen can push the pace and not tire throughout the five rounds, then he has a chance of staying with the pace of Jan but I don't see that as likely because I think Jan has some of the best stamina in all of the UFC, and he continues to show that fight after fight. He showed that when he knocked out Uriah Faber in, in the third round, when he knocked out Jose Aldo in the fifth round, and then when he outlasted Aljamain Sterling before ultimately losing by disqualification. But he shows time and time again he's able to overcome any tiredness and take over, especially in those championship rounds in the fourth and fifth rounds. So for this fight, I like Jan by unanimous decision. Now let's move on to the main event. This is the light heavyweight title fight between Jan Blokowicz, the champion, and Glover Teixeira, the challenger. Blokowicz is 38 years old. He's 6'2", 205 pounds with a 78-inch reach. His opponent, Glover Teixeira, is 42 years old, 6'2", 205 pounds, with a 76-inch reach. So their measurables are pretty close. Blockwitz has a 2-inch reach advantage on Teixeira. Teixeira has been waiting for this title opportunity ever since they passed him up and gave the title fight to Israel Adesanya first against Jan Blockwitz. Now he's finally waited his turn and he gets his chance to fight Blockwitz for the title. 
Since losing to Corey Anderson by unanimous decision in 2018, he's undefeated. He went on to beat Carl Roberson by submission, Ion Kudilaba by submission, Nikita Krylov by split decision, Anthony Smith by knockout, and Thiago Santos by submission. Those two most recent wins against title contenders in Anthony Smith and Thiago Santos and looking dominant in both those fights is part of the reason why he's getting this title shot against Jan Blokowicz. He was the underdog, I believe, in both those fights against Anthony Smith and Thiago Santos. He still came out on top. And in the fight against Anthony Smith, he really gave him quite the beating in there. I don't know how this fight lasted five rounds. It could have been stopped in the third round, in the fourth round, but he just kept wearing on Smith, kept beating him down, taking him down, and doing a lot of ground and pound in that fight to get the big win over Anthony Smith. And then against Thiago Santos, we all know Santos is a very dangerous striker and he can knock you out at any moment. And a few times during that fight, he did in fact catch Teixeira and he thought, oh, he might knock Teixeira's lights out. But each time Teixeira recovered and was able to go back to what he does well, which was his wrestling, and ultimately he was able to get a third round submission victory, a huge victory for him over Thiago Santos. If he loses that fight, I don't think there's any way he's fighting Blockwitz for the title tomorrow. While Blockwitz is a pretty old champion at 38 years old, Teixeira's even older at 42 years old. And looking at the odds for this fight, Blockwitz is a favorite at minus 300, Teixeira the underdog at plus 240. But guess what? I'm ruling with the underdog in Glover Teixeira. I think he has a relentless approach. He has a really good all-round game. He can box pretty well. He can take you down. He's got good submissions. And I think Jan Blockwitz is an amazing fighter, a great champion. But this just feels like destiny to me. The fact that he beat Thiago Santos and Anthony Smith and looked great in those fights shows me that he has the heart of a champion, and at 42 years old, he may finally realize his lifelong dream of becoming a UFC champion. Now, Blockwitz, he's got a bit of an awkward striking game that makes him hard to hit. And then, of course, he's got very a very good ground game, but I actually would favor Glover Teixeira in terms of uh, the wrestling and the jiu-jitsu. So I give him the edge there, and then on the feet, I'd give the slight edge to Jan Blockwitz. But I think... A majority of this fight could be contested on the ground, and I give Glover Teixeira the slight edge there. That's why I like him to win, I'll say by split decision. It should be a close competitive fight, but for some reason I'm picking the underdog here to win. Both these guys are of equal skill level, I would say. The only thing separating them is their experience. Teixeira has been in there with the best of the best in his Division. He's been in there against the likes of John Jones, Phil Davis, Rashad Evans, Anthony Johnson, Jared Kanier, Alexander Gustafson, Corey Anderson, Nikita Krylov, Anthony Smith, Thiago Santos. So all that advantage in experience could really matter in this close fight. So that's why I'm picking the underdog Glover Teixeira at plus 240 to win by split decision. I think Jan Blockwitz will come with everything he has, but you can't deny a man that's so determined and looked so great against Anthony Smith and Thiago Santos. And Jan Blockwitz, 
He looked okay against Israel Adesanya. He did what he needed to do to win, but really his best performance came against Dominic Reyes when he knocked him out with some beautiful body kicks followed up by some big punches to the head, and that's ultimately what won him that fight. But now going in there against Glover Teixeira, it's going to be a very close fight. And if Jan Blockwitz can piece him up on the feet, then most likely he could win by knockout. But I think Teixeira is very durable. He can definitely take a punch and come back with more. So we'll see how this fight plays out. If it's mostly contested on the ground, like I said, I like Teixeira to win by split decision. Now let's move on to the next UFC fight card, UFC 268. Usman vs. Covington 2 on November 6th from Madison Square Garden in New York. And the third fight on the card is a pretty big fight between Justin Gaethje and Michael Chandler. It's a lightweight fight at 155 pounds. Chandler is the underdog at plus 160. Gaethje the favorite at minus 190. And ultimately I agree with these odds because I'm going to go ahead and pick Gaethje here to win. I'll say by unanimous decision. I just think that his consistent striking will be able to overtake the explosive striking of Michael Chandler. Now, I could definitely see Chandler getting a first-round knockout of Gaethje, but if Gaethje is able to weather that early storm, he'll start to put together his punches like he did against Tony Ferguson, slowly break down Michael Chandler, and ultimately win that fight. It should be a really great striking battle between these two guys, and if Chandler keeps getting pieced up on the feet, then I could see him trying to take down Gaethje and make this more of a wrestling match. But if this stays on the feet, I would favor Gaethje here because he has some of the best boxing in all of the UFC, and I expect him to utilize those skills against Chandler in a pretty big lightweight fight. So my pick here is Justin Gaethje by unanimous decision as a minus 190 favorite. Moving on to the second fight on that fight card, it's a woman's strawweight title fight at 115 pounds between Rose Namajunas, the slight favorite at minus 120, versus Zhang Weili, the slight underdog at plus 100. This is, of course, a rematch from their first fight where Rose Namajunas knocked out Zhang Weili with a beautiful head kick, one of the knockouts of the year in the first round. An amazing performance from Rose Namajunas against a very skilled striker in Zhang Weili who gave Joanna Juresic everything she could handle in their fight of the year from 2020. Now they're getting a rematch against Rose Namajunas and I still like Rose to retain her title. I think that her length will really give Zhang Weili trouble here because she's the taller fighter at 5'5", Zhang Weili at 5'4". She's also got a 2 inch reach advantage on her at 65 inches versus 63 for Zhang Weili, and that's ultimately why she won the first fight. She faked down to the legs and went up top to the head of Zhang Weili, and because of her longer limbs, she's able to land those strikes more efficiently and more accurately, and of course, with great power. So that's why I favor Nami Yunus to retain her title here. Now if this is a long, drawn-out fight that goes the full five rounds. I could see Zhang Weili having better stamina in the later rounds and coming out victorious. But I think Nami Yunus will be able to figure out her in the first couple rounds, and I'm picking Nami Yunus to win by third-round knockout. 
One thing that Nami Yunus will have to do in this fight is keep Whaley off balance because if you let her get in the pocket and get comfortable with throwing combinations, she can overwhelm you and win the fight. But if Rose Nami Yunus keeps her guessing with different striking techniques to the head, to the body, not really knowing where the next strike is coming from, it will allow her to gain an advantage and make Zhang Weili feel uncomfortable in there, and that's why she'll ultimately win this fight. Now, if she doesn't do that, and she lets Weili get on the inside and really control the range that this fight is, you know, fought at, then most likely Weili will end up winning this fight. So it really comes down to who can control the range and assert their will on their opponent, and I like Rose Namajunas to do that and figure out her out once again and get a third round knockout. The main event features another rematch between two welterweights in Kamara Usman and Kobe Covington. Usman is the favorite at minus 300, Covington the underdog at plus 240. Usman is 6 feet 170 pounds with a 76 inch reach. Covington is 5'11", 170 pounds with a 72 inch reach. So a little shorter and 4 inches in reach advantage for Usman. Covington is 33 years old while Usman is 34 years old. Now in all the fights that Usman has had up to this point, I would say his toughest fight to date was the one against Kobe Covington. Covington really pushed him to the break there, forced Usman to dig deep, make adjustments, and ultimately he came out on top because I think Usman is the best fighter in the UFC at making mid-round adjustments from rounds one to two to three. He's able to adjust, read his opponent. That's what he did against Gilbert Burns. That's what he did when he knocked out Jorge Masvidal. He made those in-fight adjustments. And I think he might have the best jab in all of the UFC. It's so powerful. It really snaps the head back of his opponents and allows him to control the range of the fight and how it's going to go. And the scary thing is that Usman, I think, is still getting better in each fight, still learning more and more about the sport. And like he said, he's going to start lapping these guys. He's going to beat them once, then he's going to beat them again. I think that's going to happen with Kobe Covington, and then perhaps Gilbert Burns could be next. He's already beaten Jorge Masvidal twice, so next he's going to be Kobe Covington twice, and then maybe Gilbert Burns twice. We'll see how this all plays out. Since Usman became champion by beating Tyron Woodley by unanimous decision, he went on to beat Kobe Covington by a fifth round knockout, Jorge Masvidal by unanimous decision, Gilbert Burns by a third round knockout, and Jorge Masvidal by a second round knockout. This guy is just getting better and better, and I like him to win this fight against Covington, I'll say by a third round knockout. I think it's going to take him less time this time around to figure out Covington, and he's so great at making adjustments, and as, as I said earlier, I think he has the best jab in all of the UFC. And don't forget about his wrestling, because he is an absolute beast on the ground. He can take you down, control the fight from there, or if you want to stand up with him, he can jab you. He can also switch stances to southpaw and force you to make another adjustment because his punches are coming from different angles. That's what he did against Gilbert Burns in the second round. He switched to southpaw. Burns was so confused in there, and that's why he got knocked out. Usman is the favorite in this fight at minus 300, and Covington is the underdog at plus 240, and I like Usman here to win. 
by third round knockout. I think he is getting better and better. And if no one in the welterweight division can really challenge him, he might consider going up to 185 pounds and maybe challenging Israel Adesanya. I'm not really sure if he has those lofty goals. But right now, you could argue he's the best fighter male in the UFC. Because right now, I'd say that Amanda Nunes and Valentina Shevchenko are probably the two best fighters in the UFC, man or woman. But in terms of the best male fighters, I'd put Kamara Usman at the top of the list because of how dominant he's been in his recent title defenses. Now, it's time for one last preview before I sign off for this episode. And that's, of course, the fight card coming up on November 13th from the UFC Apex in Las Vegas, Nevada. It's UFC Fight Night Holloway vs. Rodriguez. And this fight was scheduled a few months ago, but ultimately it didn't happen because Holloway had an injury to deal with, so it got postponed. But thank goodness they rescheduled this fight because I think this has fight of the year written all over it. When you look at the striking matchup between Max Holloway and Yair Rodriguez, it really doesn't get much more exciting than that for a UFC fight fan. I am so excited for this fight, and if I had to pick one fight that I could watch all year, and I only had one fight to watch, it would be Max Holloway against Yair Rodriguez. Because Rodriguez throws kicks from weird angles, he throws punches, and then Holloway is a non-stop whirling dervish coming at you with punches, one-twos, one after the other, and it doesn't stop. His stamina is amazing. His ability to push the pace is like no other, and we saw that against Calvin Qatar when Max Holloway gave, gave him an absolute beating to win a five-round unanimous decision win. That win came back in January of 2021, so nearly 10 months off for Holloway going into this fight coming up on November 13th. His opponent, Yair Rodriguez, has even a longer layoff. He hasn't fought since 2019 when he got a unanimous decision win over Jeremy Stevens. But the fact that he's been out of the octagon for two years now means that he should come in fresh and hopefully he hasn't lost any of the flair that he fights with. Holloway is American from Hawaii. He's 29 years old and he's 5'11", 145 pounds. With his 69-inch reach, his opponent, Rodriguez, is Mexican. He's also 5'11", also 29 years old, 145 pounds with a 71-inch reach. Holloway is the favorite at minus 500. Yair Rodriguez, the underdog, at plus 380. I'm not really sure right now, but I believe this is a five-round main event fight. And if it is five rounds, I'm looking forward to watching all of it. I think Holloway will win this fight because he's the more consistent striker and he's really able to land his shots with more regularity. Rodriguez is the more flashy striker, but I don't know if he can keep landing those flashy strikes on Holloway over and over again. Also, if Holloway wants to get his title back against Alexander Volkanovsky, then he has to win this fight against Yair Rodriguez. So I'm picking Holloway to win here, I'll say by fourth round knockout in an absolute all-action firefight that cannot be missed. I cannot wait for November 13th to watch that fight. Please tune in to see Max Holloway versus Yair Rodriguez because it very well could be the fight of the year for 2021. So some pretty big fights are coming up in the UFC. We've got two title fights between P. 
Peter Jan and Corey Sanhagen, and then Glover Teixeira taking on Jan Blockowitz. And then the next weekend, we've got Kamara Usman taking on Kobe Covington in a rematch. Also, Rose Namunis taking on Zhang Wei Li in another rematch. So some pretty stacked cards there. But like I said, the fight I'm really looking forward to is Max Holloway against Yair Rodriguez. Well, that will conclude episode number 31 of Combat Bets with Jason Barron on the Believe Network presented by betonline.ag. Thank you so much for listening, my fellow believers. My next episode will be boxing-centric. I'll be previewing Canelo Alvarez versus Caleb Plant. I'll also be previewing Terrence Crawford against Sean Porter and giving my reactions to the big heavyweight fights between Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder, also Anthony Joshua versus Alexander Usyk. So tune in to episode number 32 to hear my boxing podcast. Once again, thank you so much for listening. Kobe forever, Mamba forever, Hank Aaron forever, Diego Maradona forever, Elgin Baylor forever, of course, Marvin Hagler forever, Muhammad Ali forever. I hope everyone has a great end of the year with Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up and Halloween right around the corner. So everyone enjoy the holidays and also look forward to all the big fights we've got coming up in MMA and also in boxing. Thank you so much for listening and have a great weekend and enjoy all the big fights that are coming up. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.